Good afternoon. We have a session on uh, public management and private sector development in our comments. My name is Siosiwa um, Utoikamanu. I am the director of the Pacific Island Center for Public Administration at the University of the South Pacific. We have two speakers with us this afternoon. The third speaker, unfortunately, could not make it. Um, our first speaker is Matt Dornan, and he has already been introduced to you, so I won't repeat that. Our second speaker, Tobias Haak, will speak on public financial management. Um, Tobias is an economist with the World Bank, based in Suva. He has spent the past four years working on public finance and economic development issues across the Pacific, including two years spent as the World Bank resident economist in Honiara. So we'll give our speakers 10 minutes slots, uh, slots each uh, to be followed by questions. So I invite our speakers to comment. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Um, so this talk is based on a report published by the Pacific Region Infrastructure Facility got the report here. Um, the Pacific Region Infrastructure Facility, that those that for those of you that are not familiar with it, is a multi-donor partnership that includes the Australian and New Zealand aid programs, uh, the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, the European Commission, and the European Investment Bank. Um, so the report is titled Infrastructure Maintenance in the Pacific, Challenging the Build, Neglect, Rebuild Paradigm. And it was co-authored by myself, um, Corey Yap, Kerry McGovern, with guidance from John Austin. And I'm very pleased that all three co-authors are here with us today. Um, focus of the report is fixed physical infrastructure in key sectors, which includes the power sector, water and sanitation, ICT, solid waste, and land, air, and sea transport. John Austin, the manager of the PRIF office, will officially launch the report tonight at the dinner. Uh, my presentation today provides a sneak preview as to its content. So the problem of inadequate maintenance um, has long been recognised, uh, both around the world and in the Pacific. Lack of maintenance leads to the premature deterioration of infrastructure, um, and that affects people. It means that fewer children go to school, fewer people have access to health clinics, um, leads to disease because of um, uh, unclean water and poor sanitation. Inadequate maintenance is also costly in a financial sense. Um, it's well known that preventative or routine maintenance, on average, provides a better financial return uh, than investment in new infrastructure projects. For concrete structures, for example, a widely quoted figure is that for every dollar of routine maintenance that isn't performed, this ends up costing $5 in repairs and ultimately uh, $25 in rehabilitation. Statistics on the impact of poor maintenance in the Pacific are hard to come by. Um, there are, however, a lot of anecdotal examples. Our airline, for example, in 2010, um, had to operate its plane at 50% capacity, um, leading to high financial losses. That was because the main fuel storage tank in Nauru um, had a leak, uh, a symptom of poor maintenance. In another example, and this is shown in the slide, uh, the Kiribati Public Utilities Board um, found that a lack of routine maintenance for power generators had increased the frequency of power outages, reducing revenue for the utility. Um, and that's shown on the top graph. And it had also reduced generator efficiency, 
um, meaning that PUV had to purchase more fuel to generate the same amount of power. And that's shown on the bottom graph. Now, this is, this, um, is a hypothetical graph um, that was constructed using parameters adopted in the road asset management system used by the PNG Department of Works and Implementation. So using those parameters, um, we've shown the costs of keeping a one kilometre stretch of paved road in good condition um, over 25 years. Now the graph shows two scenarios. In one, the road receives routine maintenance um, along with periodic maintenance as would be expected. In the other, it receives no routine maintenance. Um, it's basically left to deteriorate to such a condition that it can no longer be used, and then it's rehabilitated. Um, and you can see that in the graph, the cost of the routine maintenance, which is the, the green line at the bottom, leads to a far lower life cycle cost than um, the alternative, which is the rehabilitation scenario. And I would note that this graph doesn't include economic costs associated with not having a road. So the fact that children can't go to school or people can't access health clinics, those costs aren't measured um, in this graph. There's no single explanation for poor maintenance. Um, a range of interrelated factors are responsible. In our report, we've um, placed these factors into three categories, um, which you can see in the slide. Resource constraints provide one explanation. So resource constraints in Pacific Island countries are um, especially evident at the fiscal level, um, with many governments, particularly among the smaller states, reliant on development, uh, development assistance for their recurrent expenditure. Resource constraints can also result from institutional arrangements. So one issue is that governments, despite having adequate resources, fail to allocate necessary funding towards routine maintenance. Um, Another issue is that user fees often aren't high enough to cover costs, and this is very visible in the power sector, um, where lack of financial resources among utilities leads to lack of maintenance, that causes poor performance. And this then creates a vicious cycle because people don't want to pay their bills and are very opposed to increasing user fees when the reliability of power is so poor. A second set of reasons um, relates to uh, the capabilities of organisations. So, Infrastructure maintenance and asset management um, require a range of capabilities. These include forward planning, uh, technical capacity and associated human resources, adequate internal controls, um, systems, processes uh, for procurement, accounting purposes, um, clear roles and responsibilities, and of course management that is accountable for the performance of, the, of an organisation. It's difficult for small organisations and indeed for small governments to have in place all of those capabilities. Even in larger states, the division of responsibility between national and local level governments um, often leaves local governments responsible for infrastructure when they don't have the requisite human or financial resources. Incentives, um, which are shown at the top, um, are interlinked with many of these reasons. So obviously managers and staff require incentives to actually undertake um, maintenance activities. Communities also need to value uh, uh, need to value the infrastructure services. So in the work that I've done on rural electrification programs in the past in the Pacific, um, one reason for the lack of maintenance has often been the failure to involve communities at the design stage of rural electrification programs. In the academic literature, um, 
there's a very large literature on the role of incentives. So um, economists such as the late Eleanor Ostrom um, argue that donor funding of new infrastructure reduces incentives for maintenance um, among recipient countries. And then, of course, at the political level, there's always, um, in any country, <coughs> a mismatch between short-term political incentives, which value new infrastructure projects, and the long-term sustainability of that infrastructure. I want to spend a little bit of time just grounding the points that I just made um, with some data from uh, data or, or case studies from the Pacific and PNG. So this slide uh, shows funding for maintenance and rehabilitation of national roads in PNG. Um, the funding gap is the light grey area, which shows the difference between what is needed over five years to achieve targets in PNG's medium-term development plan for the road sector, and funding that was actually allocated through the budget, which is the dark grey area. Estimates of what has actually been spent um, are different again, and they're shown by the black line at the bottom. I think three points are pretty evident um, in this graph. First of all, funding allocations for maintenance and rehabilitation have increased in real terms in, in recent years. That's a positive. Second, um, there's been a chronic underfunding of maintenance and rehabilitation of the national road network for many years. Um, and that's the reason that PNG's road network is in the state that it is in. Third, uh, I think that this graph actually points to capacity constraints within um, organisations responsible for road maintenance. And this is evident in the failure to spend um, resources allocated by government. I'm going to skip over the next slide because I am almost out of time. Um, so how can the problem of inadequate maintenance be addressed? Um, not surprisingly, there are no uh, panaceas, there are no easy answers. Um, the fact is that infrastructure sectors vary enormously. We can't compare ICT services provided by private companies with a road network which is provided by government. Similarly, we can't compare the road network in PNG with the road network in Tuvalu. They're two very different things and they require different responses. What we've done in the report is prepare a list of actions for addressing each of the three reasons for poor, uh, for each of the three reasons for poor infrastructure maintenance, and we've also prepared a fourth category that's relevant to donors. Um, the recommendations are really designed to get policymakers and managers in the Pacific thinking about infrastructure maintenance um, solutions on the ground. As I just mentioned, um, will need to be context specific. Um, I might leave it there, as my time is done. So thank you. Well, last session of the day and we uh, get to talk about PFM. I hope we don't have too much fun. Um, look, thank you for the chance to speak today. Um, it, it's great to be here and I, I realise a lot of you in the room probably know more about uh, running budgets in the Pacific than I ever will. So uh, I'll proceed with all due respect and, and caution. Um, 
This work really is based on, on, on two things that we've been working on. One is a, uh, a working paper that I did with uh, a couple of uh, other researchers, David Knight from the bank, and Danook, who's a, uh, a postdoctoral research fellow here at, at the um, Crawford School, um, which basically looks at public finance management in the Pacific uh, in a broader global context. The second one is a piece of work that we did uh, with the IMF, uh, the PIFTAC, which is the Pacific um, Technical Assistance Centre of the IMF, that works with Pacific countries around the region on public finance issues. And what that report was, I've got a couple on the table there and some more at the front, if anyone's uh, interested, um, is really saying, okay, given what we find in terms of the patterns in PFM performance in the region, what should we be doing differently going forward? Okay, so given this audience, we don't need to spend too much time on this. Why, why does a budget matter? I mean, basically, public finance systems, the laws, the institutions, the processes about raising public finance, raising taxes, and allocating money to deliver social services and infrastructure are vital. They're vital for private sector development because your private sector requires infrastructure and other public goods that the public sector provides. And it's also vital for the MDGs and social service delivery. Obviously, you need an education ministry that can get the money it needs, when it needs it, going to where it is needed. Um, I don't want to go too much into detail here, I mean, but I think we can all see that in the Pacific, some of the um, problems that we, we experience with, with public finance systems and budget systems are very widespread. They're seen around the world. Um, your fiscal management is often undermined because, because budgets... Um, exceed limits, more money is spent than is available, you often have problems that you don't get allocative efficiency. Rather than the budget being reassessed every year and money being redirected to where the government wants it spent, people do pretty much the same thing as last year. Um, we see inefficiency in resource use because there's limited accountability on the use of resources among government departments. And we often see, um, I mean, I, and I think this is very striking, fictional budgets is, is what I call it. And this is... Um, this is widespread. This is what we found with uh, the more work we do digging into this, the more we see it in, in, more, in more Pacific Island countries. Basically, budget allocations at, in the budget at the start of the year bear very little resemblance to the actual expenditure that, that happens on the ground. Um, so you can see Ministry of, in Country A, I've anonymized the data. In Country A, Ministry of Finance basically 80% of its budget from one thing to something else. In 2009. In country B, most ministries have variants, have underspends or overspends of more than 20%, and a good number have underspends and overspends of more than 50%. In that context, your budget basically doesn't mean anything, right? So this is this is not unique to the Pacific. This this kind of outcome happens everywhere in the world. Um, to put this stuff in context, we wanted to say, hey, what is different about Pacific? What are we doing well? What are we doing less well? So we went to a data source that's called uh, the Public Expenditure and Financial Accountability Assessments. This is a standardized scorecard of um, PFM processes, public finance processes from around the world. Basically, they score countries on 63 different PFM functions, and then they give that country a, basically a grade based on, on, the, on its... Uh, uh, success in implementing each one of those PFM processes. What this allows us to do is do is, is some international comparisons of how Pacific Island countries compare with other countries in terms of the, you could say, the quality of their PFM systems. Um, 
uh, at least their, their scores against the scorecard was pro would probably be a better way to put this. Yeah, what we see is, is, is obviously, I mean, there's huge variance in the, the performance of Pacific Island countries, the black dots. Um, on average, though, we see Pacific Island countries do less well than would be expected at countries of their level of income. Obviously, in income matters, right? Because, because the more resources you have, um, the more you can invest in the people and the systems and the technologies to make your budget work. So why is it that Pacific Island countries do a little bit less well than, than we think? Well, we thought capacity might be a question here. The fact that Pacific Island finance ministries, line ministries, typically have small numbers of people in absolute terms, <coughs> and those people often don't have the same kind of skills that you see in bigger, uh, richer countries. So you, you basically, in a budget office that has six people working on the budget, you're not going to have the same kind of uh, specialist skills and you're not going to have enough people to do the work potentially as you would in a country like I used to work in the New Zealand Treasury where we typically have 150 people working on the budget. Um, so we looked at the impacts of population size and what we found was once you take population <coughs> size into account there's a very strong relationship between population size and country scores on these P for assessments. And once you take account of population size, Pacific Island countries generally perform very close or better than would be predicted by that data. So th this is all outlined in, in uh, far more detail in, in our working paper, which is available online. But basically our argument is that when you've got so few people in these ministries, you've got so few people, and these people don't have the specialist skills you see in bigger, richer countries, then it's going to be really hard to get a budget that does all the things you want your budget to do, to get a, a tax system that does all the things you want your tax system to do, to get a macroeconomic forecasting division doing forecasts of the same technical complexity and accuracy as we would come to expect in rich countries. Um, what did we think could be done about this? We've written this guidance note, and that's come out of uh, a joint effort between us and the IMF and also the Overseas Development Institute based in the UK drawing on a whole range of research. But the basic arguments are, are twofold, and I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna go straight through this. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of kind of um, more nuance to this, but uh, given the, the, the time and constraints, I think our key messages really are, are that what we do when it comes to PFM globally, but especially in Pacific Island countries, it doesn't reflect what we know. It doesn't reflect what all the evidence and all the literature tells us. We think that we, we come along and we, we put programs in place that are, are designed to bring PFM, PFM systems up to first world developed country OECD standards, um, when even the basic systems are often very weak. We think that if we encounter a capacity constraint, we say, well, we'll need to build capacity. <coughs> so we send people on some workshops, or at best, we provide them with TA for, for six months or a year, uh, when we know that there simply aren't often enough people to absorb that training. There aren't enough people on the ground to be around to be capacity built. Um, and often, if people are around to have their capacity built, they will move to the private sector, they will move to donor agencies as soon as they get that training. We know that um, PFM institutional change generally takes hundreds of years, at least decades. That's been the historical experience of our countries. Our budget systems did not come out of nothing overnight. 
they developed over hundreds of years to address very specific needs and very specific problems that our countries were facing at various historical and social junctures. So it's, it's, it's a little bit ill-informed, perhaps, to think that these countries should adopt our systems overnight. And finally, we say we're in the business of advising, not in the business of doing. So we put people into finance ministries and every other kind of ministry, and we say that they're in capacity building. But so many of the people in Pacific in capacity building roles are doing the work. And I think we all, we all know that. That's not, that's not saying anything that anyone in this room doesn't know is the case. So often we call it capacity building when in fact it is, it is literally doing the work. Um, what do we think needs to be done differently? Rather than start with the approach that we're going to try and implement systems that look like uh, rich country systems, that look like developed country systems, that look like complex, complete systems, our, our start point is to say, <coughs> what problem are you trying to solve through your public finance management system? Are you trying to solve a problem with fiscal sustainability, with your budget leading to too much money being spent every year? Are you trying to solve a problem where you think that the money isn't going to where it's needed? Are you trying to solve a problem where you think the money is going to where it's needed, but once it gets there, the line ministry isn't spending that money in the way that leads to the, the most efficient use of that money? Um, and, and, and I won't go into the detail, I'm running out of time again, but our, uh, our basic idea is that depending on your goal, you really need very different solutions, and we go into some detail in the report about how you could tailor PFM interventions to those solutions. Our second key message is that rather than saying that the solution to everything is capacity building, we need to think about some broader models of capacity support, um, a little bit perhaps more openly. Uh, we can talk about capacity building as building up skills of individuals that are already in departments. That tends to be the, the standard model. We can talk about capacity supplementation, where we actually provide some assistance in, in TA positions to help fulfill a function over a sustained period of time. Or we can think about options for what we were calling capacity substitution, where we basically say, if you've got 50 people with, with, with any kind of technical skills in your finance ministry, don't try and spread them too thin doing everything. Have them doing ex exactly what you think is the highest priority and can only be done by internal staff. And then think if you can use regional organizations, donor funds, or even your own funds to outsource some of this work to the private sector or other organizations that could do this thing for you without imposing the same kind of capacity burden on already overstretched systems. Um, there's lots of examples of that. They're all in the report. I wish I had more time, but I think these are the, sorry, I'll just, 30 seconds, the, the final just two, two key messages, I think. They're just the, the top two, I think, are really important. I think by, by saying we're doing capacity building when we're actually doing capacity substitution, um, it, it leads to a real mess. Because it leads to the people in those line ministries with that role being able to say, oh, not my fault, I'm only here to build capacity. How, I, I, I didn't have the people on the ground to work with. How can I be held accountable for results? And it leads to a situation where so often nobody is accountable for results. So I think there's some real benefit in being honest about what we're doing when it comes to these capacity solutions. Finally, people often say, you can't do capacity substitution because it's not sustainable. Building up the capacity of people who will leave is not sustainable either. 
building up the try, having a capacity building program when you know that there just simply aren't enough people in the ministry to get the work done, that's not sustainable either. So I think that both of these kind of arguments need to be taken account and, and measured against each other. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. All right. Um, time for questions. A few quick questions. Yes, thanks. Uh, a question from Matt. Uh, I once had a long chat with a, a road infrastructure advisor in, in ADV who said to me if they would spend 2% more of the budget on making sure that the quality of the concrete pour or the, the steel that was used in the bridge or whatever, roads would last for 20 years rather than five years. Now, did you look at you know, this trade-off? I mean, you're essentially looking at maintenance. I mean, if you've got a road that's built to last 25 years, yeah, it's going to be less maintenance. Another question? Uh, not a question for Matt. Uh, a number of reasons Matt we gave for uh, the reasons, of the causes of lack of maintenance and so on. Uh, I was wondering in that list, I couldn't see uh, any reference to the lack of incentives for the organization responsible for carrying it out to do it well. And uh, in response to the 100-year learning curve in terms of Tobias's area, uh, surely after all these reports that have been gathering dust everywhere, there must be uh, a set of desiderata that can be laid out on a page in respect of, say, structural reform, like the introduction of competition in mobile telephony in Papua New Guinea. We know the result. And those sorts of uh, precedents if they could be spread and said, well, if you do this, you know you're going to get this result, so don't worry about doing a long report. <laughs> one Thanks. last question. Christian Fitzbarns, um, one of your proposed solutions, uh, and I don't disagree with your diagnosis, but one of your proposed solutions seems to be involved in contracting out the services. Uh, I would have thought that managing contracted services is demand as the So first, in response to Ron's question, uh, yeah, absolutely. Construction standards uh, matter immensely. And like Tobias, I wish I had more time. It's very hard to present a 170-page report in 10 minutes. Um, but we do look at construction standards um, and also at ways, I guess, innovative approaches to actually improving the standards of donor-funded projects, things like defects liability theories, things like that. Uh, in response to the second question, um, Absolutely. Incentives are very, very important. Um, so in the slide that I had on the reasons for formations, one of them was incentives, and it covered a whole range of incentives. Um, it is really important, obviously, for organisations to have incentives in place to um, maintain the infrastructure. Uh, and the starting point for that is ensuring that management um, for those organisations is kept accountable for Just uh, responding to, to Bob's point, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And, and we, we, I mean, th this idea that, that, that uh, you can avoid a capacity burden by outsourcing, I think all the history of PPPs everywhere in the world shows that that's not necessarily the case. You just get a different set of capacity challenges. Um, and I don't think we have a simple solution to that. 
I think what we would say is that there's an important role to be played by regional institutions and donors in assisting countries in managing those contracts. And, and if this is something that's done um, regionally, you would find that there would be very similar kinds of things being outsourced, potentially, and that lets you have some uh, economies of scale or some kind of templates or some kind of um, common processes to go through when contracting out, contracting out various services. So I think that, that basically uh, the argument is that y your uh, capacity involved in outsourcing can itself be outsourced to some extent, and the more people do it, the more that there will be a, a shared understanding of how that can be done. One last round of questions in the back. Question for Matt and Tobias. Um, Matt, uh, you mentioned uh, the, the problem of funding and the security of funding, particularly in the Fiji road sector. So obviously a good example. Um, the Fiji government set up the National Road Fund um, some years ago with assistance from ADB. I wonder if your report considered the ability of that model of trying to isolate a, a dedicated funding source for maintenance as a, as a way of overcoming many of the challenges we see in the Pacific, and then device what, what's your view on uh, the integrity of public financial management systems that set up independent funding sources outside of the general facilitated budget, and what the trade-offs are there in terms of ensuring funding for maintenance and, and, and the integrity of the budget. One last question, and then that's it, please. So, uh, yes, we, we did look at the National Growth Fund um, as one of the case studies in our report. Um, I guess, uh, well, there are, there are two examples of funding arrangements like that in the Pacific, um, two very obvious examples, the National Growth Fund and the Solomon Islands Transport Fund. I don't think either, we don't have experience with either of them, which is sufficient to draw conclusions. The National Road Fund has been around for a little while now, but um, I would say that it never really received full government support. Um, the, the levies, the, the diesel levy that was established in order to fund it was always um, too low. Um, one thing I think we can see in the, the case of the National Road Authority, which um, spends the money basically that um, is collected through the National Road Fund, um, is it takes time to establish an organisation that will actually have the capacity to so the idea was to create a separate organisation because the Department of Works is doing such a poor job. Um, the National Road Authority also has capacity issues and it doesn't actually spend all the money that it receives through the National Road Authority. Um, 
Great question about um, earmarked varied funds. I have a personal pet hate of mine, and we, we had this discussion during the uh, preparation of the report. I mean, I, I think ultimately um, it's a political decision. If, if ministers are happy to sign up to, to tie their hands behind their backs, um, then, then I think that's what they've decided to do. To, to me, I think there is no real conceptual difference between um, investing in the maintenance of, of roads and investing in the maintenance of human capital through health expenditure. So as, once you start down the road of earmarking, it seems to me conceptually a very slippery slope. But, but that's just my view, and I guess the answer is that it's, it's really up to political decision makers. And I, and I guess this has been an ongoing discussion for cause of debate between the IMF and the World Bank and people with more of an infrastructure background, which I consider myself as one, support the idea of earmarked funding, whereas people with more of a PFM background don't. <laughs> and um, on, on the question of, of both uh, you know, political constraints to outsourcing and, and whether officials themselves want to have the best systems and, and, and think that they should be achievable. At no point, I think, does, it, does anyone say that everything should be outsourced or, or even that this particular thing should be outsourced in all circumstances. I, I think there's a real important political conversation, to, and it ultimately is all political, a political conversation to be had about where there can be consensus built for outsourcing, where the inevitable compromise on some aspect of sovereignty, ultimately, um, whether the costs imposed in, in, in that area are outweighed by benefits in terms of improved service delivery, which may itself bring some kind of political dividend. Um, to me, I think one of the really important areas where, where the, the banks started to try and do a little bit more is in South-South uh, exchanges. So trying to get officials from ministries of finance in developing countries to travel to other developing countries to see how systems work differently there. And I think the idea there is really to say that we, we all have often quite similar problems and there's many different ways you can go about solving those problems. Um, have a look at what other people are doing and see what might work for you. Rather than, I think, uh, using some kind of... Um, model based on OECD countries, which often is, is far beyond the, the resources and capacity that, that are available. So I, I think that there's um, options that could be pursued there as well. I'm afraid that's all the time we have, so please join me in thanking our speakers. <laughs>